people, the privilege that we have here. And I just want to remind you that um, Dr. Provost is going to be going to Russia, Lord willing, next week. And we need to still pray for his visa. They tell us that it's always slow in coming from Russia, and it normally would come a day or two in front. So we're not alarmed, but we are still in prayer. And so if you would remember to lift that up to the Lord, that God would provide the visa. And then from the slideshow, or actually the video that we showed you about the opportunity to give money to send Bibles uh, to Russia during this most unusual hour in history, we want you to know that on starting Friday, two days from now and then into next week, we'll have some receptacles for your donations or your gifts to put in as you sign into chapel. And we'll just collect those. And I think it would be outstanding if, if we could do that. I, I forget the exact figure, but I think if we all gave about 2 to $3 each, we'd make the $1,500 mark or the $1,400 mark. And what that would be nice is not only could we provide the Word of God for all those people who otherwise wouldn't have it, but it would be great to send Bob off with that so that he could let everybody know that he sees there that our school stands behind him and that we're giving Bibles and they'll be coming shortly, you know, by truck or plane or boat or however they get there. So why don't you pray about that and let me encourage you to, um, to do that. How many of you have never been in a car accident? Never. Well, as of 8 this morning, I could have raised my hand. But on the way to work today, I was coming down Orchard and going through that intersection where Wiley Canyon is. And I was looking at something, you know, which I shouldn't have been doing. And I look up and sure enough, got a beautiful green light and there's, everybody seems to be flowing fine. And I look back down and I look back up and I said, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to make this. So I tossed the paper, grabbed both hands. And then all of a sudden, the seconds, you know how, if those of you who've been in accidents, you know, the seconds turned to hours. Because I guess your mind and your adrenaline gets going. And I locked up my brakes and I heard that famous, you know, that screeching sound. And then I was just kind of waiting for the crunch of metal. I turned my head and closed my eyes. And sure enough, boom, I just tagged this poor lady. She, she was in her car. Uh, very sweet lady. She knows the school nurse, Karen Davidson. She's friends with, with her. And so we got out, you know, and I apologized. And. She was very nice to me. She didn't yell and scream. And most best of all, she didn't cry. <laughs> and then I got to my office and I found this piece of paper on my desk. Republic Insurance Corporation, 20535 South Belshaw Avenue, Carson, California, 90746. Dear sir, I am responding to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put, quote, poor planning, unquote, as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back down to the ground, untied the rope, and holding tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. Now you will note in block number 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. 
Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of about the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. And this, of course, explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately that same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid the weight of these bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 55 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rather rapid descent down the building. Yet again, in the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. And this, of course, accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks. Fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. Thank you very much, a Biola student. Amen. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes we humans are so foolish. Well, Monday we were giving some thought to the choices we make and the consequences that often follow those choices. And in doing that, we reviewed the lives of some men in Scripture and the grave consequences which befell their lives because of some of the choices that they had made. And then, at least in thumbnail sketch, we looked at some of our former students, those who had made choices consistent with God's word and those who hadn't. And I suggest that if we were to speak personally with these people, whether they be the people out of Scripture or the people that we mentioned from our own school, that if we would speak to these folks, they would express to us, to one degree or another, an overwhelming sense of compulsion towards their sin. I suggest that if we were to speak with these folks, that they would all express to us in one degree or another a certain measure of compulsion towards their sin. In other words, I think if we were to get alone with Saul, and maybe we'd been there right at the moment when the Philistines were looking so ominous and his army was fleeing into the caves and the rocks and the cliffs and the cellars, and we began to hear his mind, I believe that he would, were we to ask the question, did you know what you were about to do was wrong? I believe he would have said, yeah, I knew. And then I believe if we would have asked him, did you anticipate there would be some negative consequences to violating what you knew was right? I believe he probably would have said, yes, I knew that too. And then if we were to ask him, then why did you do it? He'd probably try to say, I don't know. And then we'd press him and he'd say, it just didn't seem like I had any choice. Everything in me, everything in me called for me to make that choice. If we were to talk to David as he stood up there in the evening air of his palace and looked out onto the bathing place of Bathsheba, 
And as he began to look and find out what it was and then look again and meditate and ponder on what he was seeing. And if we were to ask him at that point, David, did you know that was wrong? I believe he'd say yes. Did you know it was wrong when you sent and made inquiry of her? Yeah. Did you know you were wrong when you sent for her? Yep. Did you know that it was wrong when you when you made love to her or had sex with Yep. And did you anticipate consequences to that? Negative consequences to that? Even as you were in the midst of it? I think the chances are very high he would say, yes, I, I did. But I had this sense of compulsion. To me, it seemed as if I lost all my volitional powers, all my powers to choose, yes or no. They seemed to be stripped from me. And I really it felt as though I had no choice. The urge was so strong and the desire was so relentless. Depicts almost the sensation of addiction. No sadder, more pitiful tale could be told than that of the alcoholic. The person who is physically addicted to alcohol. And you think of that man as a husband, as a father, as a provider for his family. And in his sober moments, he absolutely hates, abhors, and detests his addiction to alcohol. He's repulsed by his behavior when under the influence. And he hates the fact that his life is on a devastating path to destruction because of his addiction to alcohol. When he's in his drunken state, he's harsh with his wife and his children and he knows and he can see it in their eyes and he can remember it when he's not drunk that he's failing them and that he's losing their respect. And it hurts him deeply and he hates it. And the workplace is marked by fear, kind of a timid fear. And he looks out of the corner of his eye and wonder who knows and who doesn't know as his level of competence continues to fall. He tries to hide his condition. But he knows in his heart one day, somehow, somebody, it's all going to come to light. He's been arrested for drunk driving, stopped, arrested. And he, he has in his heart this tremendous fear and trepidation that one of these days... Because so often is it that he is driving drunk that he's going to make a mistake and he's going to kill somebody with his car. And he's going to have to live with that. And he hates it. There seem to be a thousand reasons for him to stop drinking. So much is at stake. He hates it with all that's within him, but he just simply can't stop. And so as he's driving home from work, he begins to feel... The need or the sensation or the desire to have a drink. And with all those thoughts in his mind, very aware of what it will do to his wife and what it means to his children and what it means to his job and what it means to his life and what it might mean to somebody else's life. With all of the reality of that flooding through his mind, he still somehow manages to pull his car to the side of the road, walk into the liquor store, reach up. Take it off the shelf, walk over to the counter, pull the money out of his pocket, take it, open it, and drink it. While ours may not be a sense of physical addiction, we may not be addicted to the chemical properties of alcohol in some physical way. We are, if we are honest with ourselves, if we are genuine with ourselves about our temptation. And are succumbing to temptation. I would suggest we struggle with that same thing. That same sense of compulsion. 
that same sense of I don't even know that I have a choice anymore I hate it I know what it does to my life I know what it means to me and I told myself I'm never going to do that again and then maybe I stop for a little while and then I do it again and now having said I'd stop and proving to myself that I can't stop here it comes again okay here it comes so I'll give it I'll do it again Whatever it might be. Maybe you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. I think Paul describes that very reality in his life. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish... I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. If we're honest with ourselves, we're going to be able to say with Paul, you know, I am doing, I don't understand it, and I'm practicing it, and I don't want to do it at all. I hate it. And I believe that there is hope. I believe that the Bible does give us hope to overcome the sense of compulsion the sense of absolute loss of volitional power. But I do not believe that the hope that is given to us in this category is a quick fix. I don't believe that I could do something in this hour of chapel, having described maybe a common sensation that we feel in an addiction towards sin and in a compulsion towards sin. I don't believe that I can open the Bible to a passage, preach it, and fix everybody. I don't think I can even fix everybody who wants to get fixed. I don't think that's how Christianity works. So I'm not offering a quick fix and I'm not even offering an immediate or an ultimate extrication from the problem. But I do believe there's hope. I do believe we can grow. I do believe we can be stronger than we are. And to look at that, maybe turn back a page to Romans chapter 6. Now in Romans chapter 6... Paul has just finished a marvelous argument at the end of chapter 5. And he is so excited about it because it's marvelous news. It's the news of the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. And if you look at chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, you'll see what he says there. 
The law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying is this. He's saying, you know, the law, capital L, the word of God that was given to you. You know why that was given to you. That was never given to you so that you could find out what God wanted, what it took to be acceptable in his sight. Live that way and earn your way to heaven. He says, and we all know that. He says that was never the intention of the law. The intention of the law was always to be your tutor, your tutor, your special um, personalized tutor to show you how sinful you are. To show you that your sin is so enormous, it is so overwhelming, it is so all-encompassing. Everything about you and your thoughts and your mind and your will and your emotion and your direction and your motives. Just, just let the law show you just how sinful you are. But then he gets excited because no matter how big your sin is, there's something bigger than your sin. And that's the grace of God. No matter how many sins you've done, no matter how many things you can add up, no matter how high you can heap it, if you have enough sin to fill this auditorium, as it were, there is more grace than there is space in the auditorium. There's enough grace to have some big thing just dump grace all over the whole package and swallow it up and it's gone. And that glorifies God. You cannot out the grace of God. Nothing you can do is bad enough to forfeit the forgiveness of God in His grace for you in Christ. That's what he's saying. And these people are listening to this. They're saying, man, that's great. So no matter how big my sin gets, the grace of God is bigger. And it gives God glory when he shows me his grace is bigger than my sin. Great. Let's look at 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And so he, you know how Paul always does this. He always kind of anticipates the question that the reader's asking and then he answers it without ever really asking the question that he thinks they were asking. The question he thinks they were asking was, listen, if God's grace is so much bigger than my sin, and if it glorifies God that his grace is so much bigger than my sin, i got a great idea. We'll just go around glorifying God all day. I'll just be as sinful as I possibly can be. And the more sinful I am, the more grace he bestows, and the more grace he bestows, the more glory he gets. Great idea. And we'll just live it up as big-time sinners. We'll just give in to all the compulsions in our soul. All the things that seem so pleasing in the passing pleasures of sin. We'll just go big time down that path. Sin all we can. And God will give all the more grace. And will be glorified. And then we'll go into heaven and say, God, didn't we glorify you a lot? He's saying, no, now listen. Now here's his answer. Verse 2. May it never be. God forbid in the King James. That goes along with straightway and things like that. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul is saying... That the reason that you don't want to go on and live a sinful life and acquiesce to your compulsions and live a life of wanton sinfulness is because the fact is this. You've died to sin. You're dead to it. It no longer has power over you. He doesn't mean that you no longer feel tempted to sin. He means it's no longer in absolute control of your life. You say, how did that happen? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Verse 4, Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You say, how did I die to sin? How did that happen? And Paul says, you died to sin because when you came to Christ, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and in that way you died with Christ. You were baptized into his death. Verse 3. 
And it brings to us the vision of an actual, literal baptism of a person. That's why we kind of favor immersion. Because when you do that, here you are before Christ and you're giving your testimony. And then you, you know, you're going to get baptized. And so here I am before Christ. And then I go underneath the water. I'm, I'm baptized into his death. Underneath the water, into the grave, into the death of Jesus Christ. But the marvelous, wonderful news of Christianity is that as Christ was dead and was raised to life, so we too, being baptized into his death, are raised to newness of life. So what does all that mean? What does all that mean to me? Now look at verse 6. Knowing this. This is what this means. What does it mean for you to be dead to sin? What does it mean for you to be baptized into the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means these two things. One, that your old self was crucified. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. That your old self was crucified, number one, and that your body of sin might be done away with. And then finally, the consequence is that you should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, let me talk about that for just a minute. What does it mean? What does it mean that my old self has been crucified? And many of you have heard me talk about this before, and I will not belabor it. But you know, and I know, that we are born sinful. We are born with an inclination towards evil. We are alienated from God. And we do those things, not because we were originally born innocent, and this sinful world has corrupted our innocent little souls. We are born angry, vicious little sinners. And as soon as we get old enough to express it, we do. That's who we are. That's our fallenness. That's our fallen nature. That's our inheritance from Adam. Thank you kindly. And what he's saying is that that old self has been crucified. That, that part of your life, that biography of your life is now closed. That book is shut. That is over. And there's a new you. And that's when we talk about 2 Corinthians 5.17. When he says that you have a new creature in Christ. You've been created, Ephesians 4, in holiness and righteousness of the truth. And Peter tells us that we are partakers of the divine nature. You see, the reality of being born again as a Christian is not that just you are born again to newness of life and that you're a new creature. That is true. But this verse says that it's the backside of that or the other side of the coin, your old self is dead. And then it says the second thing in verse 6. Look at it. The old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with. Now that means your body of sin. That means not just your physical body. Those are, that's your humanness. That's your remaining sinfulness. That which you still feel in great intensity inside you. That's what Paul was describing in Romans 7 when we read it. No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's your body of sin. It means far more than your physical extremities, your flesh, your bones. It means that unredeemed part of you which still ignites in lust to take the temptation. Okay? But what about that? What does it say has happened to that? That our body of sin might be done away with. Now, you know and I know it didn't disappear. We still got it, right? You feel it, I feel it. The only reason this message has any interest to you at all is because you can identify with people who are struggling with temptation because you're one of them. It's still alive. But I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for just a quick second where that same word is used and I think you'll understand what it means that it's been done away with. What does it mean? Hebrews 2.14 Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise, that's Jesus, also partook of the same that through death, now here's our word, might render powerless. It's translated differently here, but it's the same Greek word. That through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
Now, in what sense did Jesus render powerless the devil? Well, at the cross, he had ultimate victory. Amen? There is a day coming in Revelation where he will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire. That victory has been won. But in the interim, between his death and resurrection, and between that great cataclysmic event at the end of the world when God will forever deal with Satan, Satan has been rendered powerless. He's no longer in absolute control, but he's very active. He is that roaring lion who seeks and prowls for whom he may devour. He is the tempter. He is the angel who comes appearing in light when he's really darkness and death. He is very active. He is very aggressive. He never sleeps. He never waits. He hasn't disappeared. He hasn't been annihilated. Satan is still very much with us and all of his demons. But the reality is he has been rendered powerless. He is no longer the monarch. He is no longer in charge. He no longer has absolute control because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has stripped that from him. In the exact same way, your body of sin... That thing within you, when you see a tempting event or you see an opportunity to sin and you feel it beckoning to you with all your worth to go and to seize and to grasp it, that body of sin has been done away with. It hasn't disappeared. It hasn't been annihilated. It hasn't gone away. It's just no longer in absolute control like it was before you came to Christ. Before you came to Christ, you were slaves to it. You thought you had choice. You didn't. It controlled you. Now you have freedom from it. It's no longer in absolute control. Very much there. Very much powerful. Now you're saying to yourself, okay, this sounds fine. This sounds fine. You're telling me that we're not supposed to continue in all this sin because we've died to Christ. And you're telling me what it means to die to Christ is to be baptized into his death and his resurrection such that my old self is crucified, who I was when I was born. i got a new nature now. I'm a new creature in Christ. And now the only thing that's left is my body of sin, that human inclination towards evil. And that, while it's present, has been rendered powerless. It's no longer in absolute control. Answer me this one then, Russell. How come it doesn't feel like it? Amen? How come it doesn't feel like it? How come I don't walk around every day feeling like a brand new creature in Christ with all my inclinations focused only on the person of Jesus? And when I see these tempting events, I say to them, Ha! You have no power over me. The body of sin has been done away with and I shall serve Jesus. How come we don't walk around like that? How come on the contrary, we walk around feeling inclinations deep within our soul that thirst for the things we get out of our sinful pursuits? How come when we walk around and we feel that and we see an avenue that seems to provide that we're so quick to take it? How come we can identify so completely with this idea of compulsion? With this ideal of being addicted to our sin? you relate to that? That describes you? That describes me? And that's why we need to look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important that you understand this word consider. This word consider is the very first command in the entire book of Romans. Here we are, chapter 6, verse 11 already. All these previous chapters, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Paul doesn't tell us to do anything. He just tells us about salvation, about salvation. And finally, he comes to this verse, and it's the first command in the entire book of Romans. I'd say that's pretty important. And his command is for us to consider. Consider. The King James says, reckon. Believe that it's true. And what he's calling you to do is to believe what he has said is true about you, that you are dead to Christ, 
that you have died in his death and resurrection, you've come back to life, the body of sin is done away with, the old self is crucified. He's saying, look, I know it doesn't feel that way. Just read my other chapter. Just read chapter 7. I'll tell you, I know it doesn't feel dead. But the answer for you as a Christian, a beginning towards the answer for you and for me as a Christian, is to reckon or to consider it true. It's the difference between making your decisions and your choices based upon facts or feelings. Facts or feelings. You're going to make your decisions based upon facts or feelings. The feelings for us would be at times this raging hunger for the satisfaction of our lusts. Those are the feelings. Those are very real. I'm not trying to deny those. And I'm not saying that you're wrong for having those. I think that's a part of what it means to be human before we see Jesus. I'm just asking you and encouraging you, as we see in Scripture, not to make your decision on that. Not to make a choice on how you feel. Make a choice on the facts. And what are the facts? The facts are, you've died to sin. It doesn't have power over you. What you experience as a compulsion isn't, isn't really a compulsion. It feels like a compulsion, but it's not. You have the ability, because of your identity in the death and resurrection with the person of Jesus Christ, to say no. To say no. To say no to sin. Whatever it be, whether it be gossiping, whether it be lustfully looking at the opposite sex or the same sex, whether it be cheating on an exam, whether it be boasting, whether it be manipulating your way in a relationship to get something out of it that you want for you and it's an unloving, unco- whatever it is, wherever the temptation falls, God is saying, Paul is saying, look, I know how you feel. You feel enslaved to it. It's part of being a human in this world before you see Jesus. But just let me remind you of the facts. The facts are, you're not. You're not enslaved to it. And you have the power to say no. And that's why in verses 12 and 13 he says this, Therefore, because of the facts, and because you need to realize and consider and bank on the facts, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Don't do it. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But here's our choice. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of of righteousness to God. That's the therefore. Because it's true that you've died to Christ, you've got to believe it. You've got to consider it, verse 11, and then live differently. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin and start presenting the members of your body to righteousness to God. Well, we're out of time again. But I have a few more things I'd like to suggest, just quickly, if you will. If God has spoken to your heart, Somehow, maybe through Monday or through today or in time in between where you were giving some thought to how you handle temptation. And if you really are struggling with this sense of compulsion, this loss of choice, and I really think that's all of us if we're honest, but if God happens to be dealing in your heart, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to get some help. I really appreciate Steve and Cheryl's song this morning. That's why there's you and that's why there's me. God's given us to each other to help us be all we can be. Listen, Christian, we can be a whole lot more than struggling in the compulsiveness 
of sin, of feeling as if we're not in control, as feeling as if we're just the victims of our sinful desires. There's more for us than that. Jesus provided that for us. If you're struggling in that area in a significant way, you need to to get some help. You need to talk to somebody about it. And maybe you're afraid to talk to somebody here at the school. That's fine. Talk to somebody in a church somewhere. Many of you would be struggling in the areas that are more uh, high profile, like drugs. Some of you may be struggling with sex. And you're feeling, I feel so compulsive about drugs, and I feel so compulsive about sex. To you, I especially say, get some help. The consequences for those kinds of behaviors in our world, in the advent of AIDS, if you will, are so devastating. So devastating to see a young girl find herself pregnant. And then choose again, wrongly for abortion, and to watch the wreckage of her life. The other thing I want to say is for all of us who maybe have been encouraged by the message, there is a tendency for us to say, okay, that's it. That's it. I see it, man. That's true. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. And i got to just believe it, man. i just got to believe it. And you know what that usually produces as you walk out that door with clenched fist and clenched heart saying, I'm going to stop my sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. One of two things. In a couple of weeks, you're just going to be really disillusioned. Because it's not that easy. It's just not that easy as you making that choice. Christianity is a whole lot harder than that. So I want to temper this, oh, I'm going to fix it. I'm glad you feel that way. Let me just temper a little bit. Say, you might. But it's not going to be without a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And the other, the other thing that usually happens is we turn into rigid legalists. I'm going to fix it, and I've been trying a long time, and I'm keeping trying. And now I'm just trying harder. And now I'm trying even harder than I was before. And you know those kinds of people. They're just rigid. And they have no relational power or strength to their life because they're trying to fix it. See, that's not who you want to be either. The sins you have now, listen to me, listen to me. The sins you have right now, the areas in which you struggle, you will have until the day you die. You say, that's very discouraging. That is. The sins you have and the areas in which you struggle, you will have to one degree or another until the day you die. And that doesn't justify your disobedience and that doesn't write you a ticket to go off and live in wanton sinful pleasure so the grace of God can abound to you. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't you set your hope on perfection here and now. Because perfection isn't offered to us. Only maturity. Only growth. And a mature person, you talk to a mature saint of God and you look at him and you say, are you still struggling with the same things that you were struggling with when you were in high school? And maybe he's not out doing those things or still saying those things, but are those things still alive in your heart and alive in your humanness? And if that man is walking with God, he'll say, yeah, and I hate it. And lastly, I want to say, you know, we talked about consequences. And there are consequences. And that's a legitimate motive to stop your sin. But there's a better motive. 
There's a higher motive. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and I don't know if I have it memorized perfectly, but it's in my heart. It talks about the mule. It says, do not be like the mule who requires bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. And it's describing a stubborn animal, a beast, an unthinking beast, who unless you coerce it through external force, the bit and the bridle, that thing that cranks its mouth, he won't do what you want him to do. And God says that to us. He says, don't be like the bit. Excuse me, don't be like the mule who requires bit and bridle. Don't, don't be like the mule who requires consequences to your behavior before you'll seek God. Pursue the help you need. Pursue the discipleship. Pursue the faculty member. Pursue the staff person. Pursue a church person. Pursue growth in your Christian life. Not perfection, maturity. Not because you're afraid of just the consequences. Legitimate motive. It ought to be there. Preeminently. Pursue it because you want to learn to love Christ. Because you want to grow in your love relationship with God. Let's close in prayer.